This week, a chat that's racked up nearly 25 million views on my YouTube and Facebook channels. Rob Deerdeck. Many commenters asked for a way to listen to the full interview without interruption. It was actually those comments that encouraged us to start this podcast. We traveled to LA in 2014 to spend a day with the skateboarder turned business mogul turned reality TV star. You're making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You're traveling the world. Man, it was bizarre. Who speaks candidly about his relationship with MTV. So what happened there? Honestly, it's gonna have to be so much money that I'd be stupid not to do it. And then a couple weeks later, they're like, how about this? I'm like, okay, when do we start? And talks us through some of his riskiest stunts. Man, they're like, man, this is like a real shark on me, man. But first, we kick things off with Deck giving us a peek into his entrepreneurial mindset and discussing his first big break right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. All right, so I, I wanted to start talking uh, about business. Um, explain how you really got involved in business in the first place. Man, I, you know, I like to say that I was raised by entrepreneur wolves, right? I, I, my very first experience uh, when I got into skateboarding was meeting a 19-year-old kid who owned the local skate shop who kind of gave me my first break. And... Uh, he was super entrepreneurial and and I used to spend a lot of time with him when I was uh, you know 11 12 13 years old and he was starting company after company and store after store and then all of this distribution company and all this stuff and then the people I was closest to in skateboarding then moved back and started a company with him in Dayton Ohio and now it's like and then my other pro skateboarder friend was also started his own company and this has all happened between the ages of 11 and 15. So it was, to me, this is just what you did. But what about seeing that really got you interested in it? It, it was just something that was a part of me that I just started creating companies and going for it at a very young age, just thinking that's, that's what I was supposed to do. Well, and you've referred to yourself, you know, in recent days as a serial entrepreneur. How about what now do you like about starting companies? Oh man, it's like, This day and age now, I believe there's, there's rules and processes, both diligence from a financial side and diligence from a brand and creative side that all need to come together before you would even consider doing a company. And I would say because I have not created that filter the right way and a lot of the stuff that I've created and purchased or been a part of over the last 20 years, uh, that they suffer with it today, right? So uh, something that's incredibly exciting for me going forward is just being a whole lot more thorough and, and from both aspects of, of creating a brand, especially from understanding the consumer, understanding the distribution, understanding the scalability, understanding, uh, you know, ultimately the why of the brand, like building a brand for not, uh, out of like, hey, let's get together and make this brand, that'd be cool, building a brand and being able to look at its legacy for 50 years, right? Building it forever, so. To, to what extent do you think, though, that was the best thing you had going for you back when you were younger, the fact that you were so naive to the process and didn't know everything involved that you just kind of threw yourself <laughs> into it and figured it out as you went? None. Really? None. I don't have any, like, I mean, I'm a gunslinger, right? I've made millions, I have spent millions just going for it, right? And that's on all aspects of everything. Like, if I decide I'm gonna do it, the gift is like stop at nothing execution, right? It's the, the, the problem was in the gunslinging days, it's just more like I, I didn't listen to anyone, didn't want to hear it from anyone. I'll do it and do it myself. I'll hire people to do it to do it. Let's just get it done. And uh, none of that's effective, none of it. So what have you found to be most effective? The, I, the business planning? It's about like, like putting a stake in the ground of what success is and going and doing it, right? Not just say, oh, I wanna do this, let's go for it, and then hopefully it becomes successful, right? And that's what I've basically done on everything that I've done, period, top to bottom. I think it's interesting, given how much success you've now had, to talk about what you learned from uh, some of the struggles. One of which was, uh, I think, the Skate Dreams uh, yeah, movie dreams. or Street Dreams. Yeah. Um, uh, you end up having to pay the theaters to, uh, you know, air the movies. What, why do you think that didn't work out, and what did you learn from that? Oh man, I, I tell you what, 
that was on some like balls to the wall, like next level move, right? So I decided I wanted to write a, a skateboard feature film out, out of the idea of like, you know, all these corny feature films keep happening, right? Like skateboarding is always made to look so stupid in film. So I wrote a treatment, right? Took it all around, you know, and and nobody had any interest. Like, you gotta get a writer, you gotta get, I was like, oh man, like, I gotta get a writer, like, and then one of my friends was like, oh, I write scripts. And I'm like, man, what the, what? I've known you for seven years. I've never heard you once mention <laughs> you are a screenwriter. Don't tell me you yeah, hired and him. This <laughs> and this kid produces a, a screenplay that he's written. I'm like, what the hell? So I send it to like an agent that I know, you know, this is way, this is pure San Diego, way before Hollywood. And, and he, uh, they're like, yeah, it's actually pretty good. So I set out on a journey, four months of him at my house in San Diego where I would pace every day and just fire dialogue. And we wrote this entire movie. Now it's like, I wrote a script, right? So now I take it back to the agent, man, I wrote a script. <laughs> so then, so then I, I find a producer friend of mine who I produced a short with who was like, like I could produce a movie. I'm like, you're my guy, let's produce this shit. So then uh, he puts together a budget, it was $750,000. And so the budget was seven fifty dollars to cut. I could go into the depth of this, but I'll cut it short. $750,000 budget. I ended up uh, spending $1.8 of my own money. Never got any help, never asked for help. That's how over budget it was. Uh, nobody would would distribute it or give me any type of deal because it was rated R with all the cursing. It's a beautiful movie outside of all the cursing. Nobody would give me any distribution and I was like, man, fuck this, man. This thing's going to theaters. I don't win unless this thing's in theaters. So I four-walled the thing and then put it in like 30 theaters and then did like a nationwide tour where I went and did signings to like promote it in every city that I went to. And I think, you know, I, I can't remember what uh, what the, the money that it earned back, it didn't matter because it went to the guys that I, I four-walled it with anyway. But now, you know, however many years later, I was going through my um, financial stuff for the month and there was a check in there. There was a, uh, in one of the entries for Street Dreams, it was like $17. And I was like, man, what, what, what is this? And they're like, oh yeah, you got, you got a check for uh, iTunes sales. I'm like, what? What? This is major. Uh, so yeah, that's the journey. And that is naivety at its highest level, man, where your, your will to do something and willingness to take massive risks, you could care less about everybody telling you, like, you don't finance your own, no one finances their own movies, like, you know, and telling you, every person telling you, don't make it rated R, and you're like, mm-mm, when keeping it real goes wrong. And, and again, that's that lack of understanding uh, who you're making it for, where it can be sold, or what the business behind it is, right? It's like all these fundamental rules of, of creating a business project uh, were out the door because it was nothing but passion, right? And it was, uh, it's different because it's like birthing a baby. You have it forever, right? So that's what they say. So it's, I don't have any kids, so it doesn't make sense. But it's, you went through this incredible process and forget the money and everything you learned, you still created a feature film based on, on your experiences growing up as a skateboarder, that you got the world's best skateboarders to all play parts in it, and Pharrell did your theme song, and, and you did all this great stuff with it. Uh, however, it made no money. How'd you get involved in shoe design? Early on, then I, I was being approached by Vans where they were talking about uh, giving me uh, a signature shoe, right? And uh, that led ultimately when DC was, when they decided, the guys from, from uh, George Clothing decided they wanted to do footwear, they uh, had asked me if I wanted to do a signature shoe and I had already been doing so many sketches and had so many ideas. Uh, so when I designed, you know, I really designed my very first shoe, you know, and, and then went on to uh, design a shoe basically each year. So I begin to teach myself the process of sketching and bringing it into Illustrator and coloring it up and doing all this stuff. It was, it was really important to me. And then I, I decided to make a deal with them 
of like, let me do a deal where I present designs the same way all the designers do, right? So how it would work is all the designers would come in and present all their designs, and then the sales team would pick the ones they liked the most. And I said, let me do that, only let me get a royalty on each shoe that I, I do. So I would show up at those. So, so there's more, I mean, you might not get as much up front, but there's more potential upside if it's successful. Right. So, uh, you know, because one shoe can, can, can make you a ton of money. It's like the lotto for, for the skate community. And so I would go into those, those shoe design meetings and with the razzle-dazzle, right? I would have the most intricate boards laid out and theory laying down and selling. And they literally would like pick every shoe that I had. And then I would just like hand it off to one of the designers getting paid like 60 grand a year to finish the thing off and go make it real. And at one point I had a third of the entire line. I was getting, um, I was making so much money off shoe royalties and when Z Quicksilver came in to buy uh, DC, they were like, what is this? <laughs> like, well, how is there like one of your pro skaters getting paid on like 35 shoes? And they're like, oh yeah, we made this deal with them. So part of when they uh, sold the company to Quicksilver is like, I, I had to completely walk away from, from designing anything besides my signature product. Really? Yeah, so, but at the time I was just, uh, just beginning to start working on Robin Big, and I was like, ah, and then moved to LA full time. Was like, ah, right, but you know, I'm 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 going this direction anyway. That was my last hustle. How did the success of the MTV shows um, create or open up opportunities for you at higher levels? I, you know, I, I think I kind of watched what what happened to Bam, right? From from seeing how Bam was selling all these shoes and Bam Bam Margera, Bam Margera from you know Jackass, and then his own show. It was kind of this thing of like, yeah, Bam is selling like all this product, right? So what I kind of did, even before Robin Big, I kind of restructured every single one of my deals, right? For my board deal, I said, look, cut my salary in half and give me uh, five bucks a board instead of uh, $2 a board. Uh, for my shoe royalty, I, I picked, give me, instead of giving me two to 5% on all my design shoes, give me 10% and I want this one shoe because I knew that this thing would bang in the mainstream, right? So uh, I did royalty deals with truck companies. I did, uh, I started a, a, a clothing brand, uh, partnered with a clothing brand to, to begin to do that because I just felt like seeing what it did for him, let me set myself up uh, to see what happens. And then when Robin Big hit, it really hit, and then all that stuff just exploded. So I reaped the benefits by almost sort of pre-planning, and that was sort of the beginning stages of really understanding uh, what it means to, to integrate products into media and sort of the significance, Im significant impact that it can have at retail. Well, and the interesting thing about that is, you know, you mentioned the integrated marketing and product placement, given that the, the fantasy factory where we're doing this interview was the setting for much of Robin Big and the, the latter, uh, you know, Fantasy Factory series. You could kind of creatively place products in here that you know you own or have an equity stake in, and have them appear in the show. And you had to, I believe, work that out with MTV to get the right to do that. How difficult was it well, to, it, you know, work it out? Well, the reality of it was, I was so ahead of my time that I tricked them, right? So... You tricked them. I tricked them, right? So the reality of it was, is Robin Big was this great success, but I didn't want Robin Big to define me, right? So at the time, I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. I had sold them ridiculousness during the final season of Robin Big, uh, ultimately because, and I read an article with Vinnie DeBona about America's Funniest Home Videos, $500 million global syndication. I was like, I'm gonna make a cool version of America's Funniest Home Videos. Sold it to them on the spot during back then. And it's now the top show on MTV. Yeah, but, but you know, but back then, they were like, no, we want you to do another reality show. We'll do them both. Right? And then they offered me all the money to do another reality show and, and or a fourth season of Robin Big. You can do them both. And I was like, man, I was deciding over a weekend, like, man, I don't want to do a reality show. I don't want it to be compared to Robin Big. And then I was like, ah, man, you're being a 
and they're gonna pay you all this money, you might as well do it. So my only request in the deal was, well, first I wrote out the entire concept of uh, Fantasy Factory that, that weekend, in, uh, which I called the Fantasy Life, where it was gonna be, a, every episode was gonna be about another one of my businesses, and I would produce it the same way I did with Robin Big in sort of a comedic way, you know? And they're like, oh, we love it, we'll take it, let's go. And, and so when I did the deal, I just requested I, that I own all of my integration rights. And so if it's anything that I own, they can't say no to. If I carved out every brand that I had, they couldn't say no to. And then when it came to big potential cor corporate brand sponsorships, we were 50-50, meaning they could never put anything in and I could kill anything they could kill. They could kill somebody from me, right? But the problem was is since I would write everything, I would write these immensely intricate uh, integrated brand partnerships with their advertisers. So they wouldn't care because it's like, oh man, you're killing it for our advertisers. And then I would go do a big deal on the side right. with the advertiser, right? So by setting it up like that, uh, it became you know, basically like a, a, a integrated marketing machine uh, sort of veiled in fun and absurd comedy. Explain the role that your sister's boyfriend played in you getting involved in skateboarding in the first place. Well, you know, I, I think I looked up to, to old Jason Hayes so much, right? And he was just a cool dude. What's his name? You gotta give him Jason a shout Jason Hayes, okay. the great Jason Hayes. But he showed up one day to school and he had four bandanas on his right leg, four on his left, four on each arm, and two spike belts across the, the waist and chest. And I was like, coolest dude I've ever seen, right? And he <laughs> just started skating. And I was like, man, like he moved up and out of, out of my school and I took over the legacy of the, of the 16 bandana game and bought my first skateboard from him, you know? And, and, uh, you know, he was the leader of the skate crew, the street rats, and uh, they wouldn't let me in the street rats, even though I had gotten so good so quick. So I had to form my own crew, and that was the Wild Grinders. Uh, and that was, you know, I remember looking in my mirror in my bedroom, and I had a One Wild and Crazy Guy sticker on my, my mirror. And I was like, Wild, Wild Grinders, all right, that's me. You know, at, at, at 11 years old, that's, that's, uh, when I became a wild grinder. And how much time would you spend while in school thinking about tricks you wanted to do? Man, I don't know. Have you ever read the book Outliers? Uh, a little bit of it. Well, it's, it's it, fundamentally, it's, it's, it's hard work alone and a lot of chance has to lead towards finding, finding great success, you know? And to me, it was like the idea of being, calling the skate shop that had a ramp and being like, yo, if I get 10 people to show up there, can I skate for free? Like, who does that, right? And which leads to, like, you going there and then them being like, you're amazing, like, and then giving you all access. So you would go after school every day and get better and better. And then you're, and, and, and so swiftly and quickly, you decided at, at all costs you were going to be a professional skateboarder and nothing else. So instantaneously that, that it was nothing else mattered to that point, you know. So you were pretty driven and ambitious growing up. 100%, like not even like eyes on the prize, like. By, by what age? I was 11. By 11 you were, yeah. okay. Eyes on the prize, like like threatening my mom with like, I'm moving to Cali the day I turned 14, right? I think that was it or something. When you, you know? moved out of the house at like 16 yeah. years old, didn't you? While still in high school. Yeah, well no, that was right after, it was right after I had just uh, stopped going to school. Okay. And, and she probably remembers it like that because she literally cried. I literally moved. You broke your mom's heart. I literally moved a mile away. And she, it was like screaming, crying, and t blaming my dad. How could you let him do this? How could you let him do this? You know, and it's like, what? I'm like moving. And then, you know. how, how tough was it on your parents when 13, 14, 15 years old, you're traveling all around skating? I mean, I don't, they may have said something different, but I, I, I don't think it was whatsoever. You know, I think it's, God bless them for giving the trust to these these uh, these guys that I went all those places with. You know that they they trusted them enough that they would uh, keep me safe and and taking me all over the all over the country. You know, so 
Uh, it was cool. After your junior year of high school, you're a half a credit short of uh, graduating. You e easily finished that last half a credit up. Uh, you, you know, graduate school, leave er er graduate school a year early to go from Ohio to California to pursue your skateboarding dream. What was that conversation like with your parents and the principal trying to convince them this is really what you should do? Well, this is one of those, this is one of those, um, situations in, in my life, that I, I like to call it the gift and the curse, where I, I have this sporadic memory, right? So I don't really hang on to anything negative, that's the, that's the gift side, but I also forget a lot of interesting things. One of which is the story of me sitting down with my parents at school, with the principal and guidance counselor and convincing them that I'm no longer going to school, which I don't remember not even one bit of. I don't, but it's like funny to me, like the idea of me sitting there and like, I don't know how this group of people could not could have, I don't know how I sold them and they all approved it. Like you're a 16 year old kid, you shouldn't be able to talk your way out of going to school anymore. It's like, it's like so bizarre to me, but it, it, you know, uh, in fact it worked. You know, my mom says that, that everybody tried to tell you, but it's like, okay, I get it. Everybody's trying to tell me that you're my, you're my parents. Like you're, you have authority to say, no, you have to. It's really rare as a kid from Ohio of all places becomes a skateboarding superstar. Generally, it's California kids because that's where it's uh, you know most popular. But where were some of the places you got to go for competition? You, you literally were all over the world. Yeah, well, no, I think my, my very first contest when I turned pro was in uh, Munster, Germany, right? So it was like zero to 60. Like, you know, I had left school and that might have been part of my sales pitch. Like, I'm going to Germany which I still can't believe that well, I didn't go with anybody. Like me and my friend just went over there, had no idea how to navigate Europe. Like I was like, it was just complete chaos, you know, but my very first pro contest, I was doing a, this move called the Ali Impossible Lip Slide. And it was so above everybody that was pro at the time, right? So, in that contest, it was just this like, what? Like this like kid has this like super trick. And, and in the finals inside this arena, uh, all the fans knew that I was, I was doing that trick at the end of my run each time. And now I'm 16 years old going through my run in the finals. And, and as I'm headed towards the rail, they all start to stomp their feet because they know it's coming and it's like, it's like, it's faster and faster. I'm like, what? Like in my, my young mind, I'm like, what, what? And I just remember like blacking out almost as I'm like going to do the trick and my feet were all over the thing. And, and then when I hit the ground and I had rode away, like that place, like, like erupted. I was like, <laughs> you know, uh, magical, a magical experience. Got fourth place. It was the best I ever did in a professional skateboarding contest for the rest of my 20-year career. Really? Yeah. So never, never got higher than fourth, and that was it. You're in your early 20s, and you're making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You're traveling the world, uh, you know, as a professional skateboarder. What's life like? Man, I, it was bizarre. Man, I, I really was lazy. You know, smoked a lot of weed in, the, in that era, and. I wasn't committed to the craft, right? I, I think in that 21 to, to, to 24 era, I was very lost, right? I, I didn't, skateboarding wasn't giving me the fulfillment that I, I needed, right? I was, it wasn't? Nah, so I was, I was trying all this different stuff, like trying all these different skateboard companies and I was getting hurt all the time and, uh, you well, know. Why wasn't it giving you the fulfillment you needed? I, I just didn't, it just wasn't enough, you know what I mean? It didn't feel like success to me, right? I was still like, uh, there was still so much hunger for, for what success could be and, and but, but misguided hunger, you know, where it was like I, I, I didn't have a stake in the ground to chase after anything. And it really wasn't till, uh, you know, I had had a couple shoes now, right, and, and made some good money, and I'd begun uh, designing the shoes, and and at the time, you know, Ken Block in D.C., I was 24 years old, and they were basically like, you know, uh, your best years are behind you. Uh, we appreciate what you've done for us over the years, and we think it's, we're going to give you one more shoe, and 
and give you a two-year contract to basically say thank you and, and we think you're done. And How'd you take it? I just, I remember sitting in there and looking at him and being like, man, I'm, I know it's not lip service, I'm not saying to say it, but in, in two years I'm gonna be a completely different person and, and there's no way that this is, um, uh, that I'm done and, and this, that this is the end and I'm not even gonna, say it, I'm just gonna prove it. And I literally like left that place, uh, started searching for hypnotists, right? And found the hypnotist, the great Dr. George Pratt, who wrote a book called Hyper Success, right? Unleashing like your true inner belief that you believe you are meant to be successful. And I got hypnotized for success. And then literally in that two year span became the best skateboarder of my entire career but also to the very top of the industry and then from that point on only signed two-year deals with DC for the next 10 years because I was like no two years from now you're gonna pay me even more two years after that so I wouldn't even sign everybody who signed three and five-year deals up until two years ago I signed a seven-year deal up until that point at 38, I had only signed two-year deals because of him telling me, like, we're going to give you two, we think we're hooking you up. And so now it's like, and now it became the benchmark of, no, every two years I'm going to be so much better and bigger than I was the previous two years, which... So this hypnotist that you went to, you, you've, you really believe this hypnotist was responsible for, or played a critical role in you becoming successful? I believe so, yes. Why? I think it's a, it's, it's understanding the period where you were in your life and then ultimately, uh, why were you so scattered for so long? Why were you so lost? And why, why did you spend three or four years like desiring and wishing rather than working? And uh, was it just that conversation of doubting me and someone questioning me that really turned on that much of a fire? I, it seems it seems unlikely, you know. And and uh, to then go through that process and go through this idea of of only working on embedding subconsciously that you believe you were meant to be successful, nothing more, nothing less. And then you go and do you make a run like I made. Uh, it's 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 hard to believe otherwise that it didn't have some sort of grand connection to it, you know. I want to go through some of the injuries that you've had over the years uh, skateboarding. Why are you only able to play video games for a short period of time? Uh, well, that is true. I I, I blew out my thumb, uh, hurt my thumb real bad, and it had a cast, and it was like so annoying when I was trying to skate. So I cut the cast off, uh, and now this thumb's down. Right? Like this thing, it gets so, it just, it's like arthritis, like immediately. If I try to play video games for two lids, it just fades. Really? Yeah, it's sad. So w what happened when you tried to switch uh, a, a five, 5-0 the 9 at Beverly Hills High School? Right. <laughs> Am I saying it right? I don't even know what the hell that is, but. Oh man, I you're blowing my mind right now. Well, I equate, have you ever been hitting the shin really hard? Uh, no. I don't man, know. damn, okay. Man, I'm no. the least athletically gifted person there. Okay, is. well, uh, this is what happened to me, right? We call it getting popsicled in skateboarding. Where I basically jumped off of uh, down nine stairs and landed on the skateboard to where it went literally directly into my uh, anus, right? <laughs> now, the pain was so intense and psychotic <laughs> and I had this vision there was all these kids there and all and my vision was like laying in a hospital with my feet up over my leg feet up over up like this and someone stitching me away here right <laughs> was all was the vision that I had on the ground there but it ended up being just like what happens when you get hit in the shin where the pain just kind of dissipates after a little bit and there was no real damage right so uh, that is what we call getting popsicle. You never, ever want to have that happen. So explain the issue with the sprained ankle. Uh, you know, I, I think in uh, what I believe, like, in that era, 
there was so much pressure on me to be a, 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 a skateboarder that I just started, I started, getting hurt became an outlet, right? Where it was like, oh, he's hurt, he doesn't have, he can't skate. Like, you know, why isn't he producing like footage and getting photos? Like, oh, he's hurt again, he, oh, his ankle's bad, oh, his ankle, you know? So it became sort of um, this sort of thing and uh, it eventually, it built up a, a, a bit of a, a uh, bone spur, right? And then I was doing a trick and the bone spur broke off and lodged in the joint, right? Which meant I had to get immediate surgery to get it removed. But once I got out of uh, surgery, and it was intense, man. It was like, I mean, I, I lived by myself. I had no help. Like, I woke up in the middle of the night. It hurt so bad. Like I was on, like chewing the carpet, like grabbing the, for like, like the painkillers that give me did not work. I literally stayed gripped to the floor for like 12 hours in pain. Um, and was like, I'm, I will never have surgery again in my life. So what's the deal with the chain wallet scar? The chain wallet scar came back from that Moonster contest that first year where I actually, uh, had done a trick over the hip and had locked up and I used to wear a chain wallet and I hit the ground so hard on my hip that I literally have a scar that goes across from here from the chain going in and that was the, the final time that I had the chain wallet. No more uh, looking cool over function, you know, no more fashion over function. I want to run through some of the stunts you've uh, done over the years and just get your uh, immediate reaction or what, you know, what comes to mind. Uh, getting mauled by a tiger. That was scary, right? The scary part was like, it was biting my neck uh, because of my hoodie, you know, and, and stuff like that. And it was the second time, right? Because you hate doing it twice. Because the first time I panicked and didn't let him attack me, I dropped first and then he just landed on me. So it's like, you gotta do it again. And, I don't, and to, in order to get a tiger to attack you, which I can't even believe is legal, there's actually a place in California that mind you can go to that well, does this. Mind numbing. The fact that it even exists, someone was like, yeah, I think there's like a play, they do it for stunts. They would probably let you do it if you did it for your show. I'm like, what the, f what? And you have to taunt the tiger. It opens up the cage, you gotta be like, come on, tiger. You know, you gotta taunt the thing, and then it guns after you, and it's like, f I know you are a trained <laughs> tiger, but this is just like, you know, and you get laid down, and then that particular time, like, it was like, ow, ow, and they were like, put it down. Put it down, you know, like as if I was like a chew toy, right? Because he was like mauling on. He had gotten a hold of my hoodie and was like chewing on my neck, right? So that was a pretty interesting experience. Getting bit by a shark. I would say that's one of the absolute scariest things I've ever done in my life because you just. It, you just have, there's such a great unknown, right? You have no idea how powerful it is. You have no idea what it's gonna be. And, and furthermore, I'd never actually scuba dove before, right? So I'm just even getting used to like being underwater like was super scary at first and trying to figure that out. Then, then you have to, the shark has to get you here, right? So you have to use, hold this wrist and use the leverage because if it gets a hold of here and gets, gets a hold of the arm, it'll just shatter your arm, right? So I'm like, man, ain't this some shit, man. This isn't even funny. And then I was down there with tuna on my arm on a sunken ship in the Bahamas, 60 feet down, like, man, what in the, f there's sharks everywhere. And like, just like, oh, you're trying to get a shark to bite you now. When that thing came in and just wham, right? like. It's like, you can't feel anything because your adrenaline is like so hardcore, you can't feel anything. And I just had this like moment of like, oh my God, like, man, like, man this is like a real shark on me. When that thing let go, it was just like this incredible, like, ah. Oh. And I remember swimming back to the boat and I just told myself, man, stop. And, and look down at like all these sharks and the sunken ship, like you are never, going to see something like this or experience something like this again. Like, put this in your memory. So I'm just like, okay, good, let's go. You know, right out of there. And, and so it was, it's, it's an amazing thing to have lived, got to, got to do, you know what I mean? How about surfing with Laird Hamilton? 
That was the only time that I really almost died, right? It looked like you got beat up pretty yeah. good there. I, I'll tell you what's great about that is gnarly people like Laird Hamilton, right? They, they're lacking. There's a self-protective gene that you have that most people instinctually self-preserve. So they have, they don't get scared or they get super scared and protect themselves. He doesn't have that, right? And the problem with people like that is they think everybody else can do things that they do. So when I was like, could I get told, could I, could I get in? Easy, nothing, it'd be nothing, easy. So by the time we got out there, I had to wait 10 extra days, right? And it was a great episode of Test Your Man level. You know what I mean? It was so great. You're, gotta, you're in I, like a mansion in Hawaii. Oh yeah, no, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. But that whole episode of like throwing the spears and climbing and just like, you know, these manly men, it's so great. And I gotta, I'm gotta, i gonna go work out with Laird this week. I wanna shoot another episode with Laird. So I sent him a text like, hey, I'd like to shoot this episode. He's like, why don't you come to my house and I'll show you the treatment. You can decide if you wanna shoot the episode. I was like, okay. What had happened is the thing with getting towed into a wave is you usually face what you're about to do, right? And the difference was is it comes in behind you and you're like, oh, this is crazy. I, you know, keep in mind, I've never surfed. That was the first time I'd ever surfed a wave is when I got towed into an 18 foot wave. Did, did you think though you, you might have a chance given you were a professional skateboarder oh, oh, easy, and maybe easy, there's some similarities? Easy. I guess the thing I was worried about was getting up like on the ski. I tried to jet ski before and couldn't do it many years ago. So now like that was, what I was afraid of. And then the spookiest part is like, you're just laying on your back out in the ocean. It just feels like there's just sharks all underneath you. It's just like, ah but just got annihilated by that thing. It's like a house falling on you. And, and what had happened is I got caught by two waves and I was down for so long that I just finally like, like was trying to hang on, trying to hang on, trying to find the surface, trying to hang on, trying to hang on, trying to hang on. And finally it was like, I, like, like nothing left to give. And right when I gave up, I like popped, popped up and he come flying in and grabbed me. And he's like, we are done you know, because he knew I almost died, right? He knew how, how dangerous that was. And really? For how long I was down, right? And- How long do you think you were down for? I don't know, it felt like half hour. Uh, it was probably like a minute. Uh, but yeah, he did it. He was spooked by that in like the most major way. Like, and I know for sure he's like, feels like Fuck, we dodged a bullet on that one, you know, so. Did, did you think that was it? 100%. Like really had to give up, like had nothing like, had to give up, was trapped and like just had to give up and kept fighting and fighting and fighting, fighting with everything I could, like struggling, trying everything I could to find and like finally like, like my arms couldn't move. Like I couldn't even like, cause I could have no oxygen left and just finally like, like went to pass out and popped up when I, when I went to pass out. It's trippy. Car stunts. Yeah. Your favorite one. Uh, you know, they're, Cars are, cars are cool in the sense of, you know, I think jumping that backwards world record was fun, pretty easy. Jumping the car the first time 100 feet was pretty easy, but flipping the car was super sketchy, right? Only because they never figured it out. Paid these guys all this money to engineer it and figure it out. It hadn't been done since the 70s. And, you know, they, they had um, uh, tested it a couple times and just destroyed the car. And they were like, we got it. We're pretty good. We're pretty sure it'll work, you know? And, and that's why when we went to go do it, the landing ramp was so short that I had to go exactly 42. So if I went 43, I'd overshoot it. If I went 40, 41, I'd undershoot it. And I'm like, what the, f why would you even like, what? Why would you not just big the, build the landing ramp bigger? They're like, ah, well, too late now. <laughs> and, and then I had to line it up within 12 inches. And I'm like, man, what the, f like, why would you, like, why would it not just be like, I gotta get close and, you know, and so now I can't even line it up. So, and, and keep in mind, I have to just try it. It's like, you know, Super Bowl commercial, season premiere, Fantasy Factory, this huge multi-million dollar Chevy deal, like big, big, fully integrated multi-platform brand partnership and you gotta get out and dance, you know, so. I had to put tape on the, on the windshield to be able to line it up with one eye because I couldn't get it to go straight w without doing that. And then, so it's like basically driving at this thing, 42, 43, 41, 42, 43, 41, 42, 42. And like, as, I, as it went off, I just closed both eyes and just when it came to it, like, oh. 
like it was like literally my life started over. It was like literally like like my entire existence as a man was on pause till after I got through that stunt, right? And when I it was like an like an awakening of like oh my god, I can't believe that this is in my highlight reel. And um, Super thrilling, man. Super thrilling. Without a doubt, one of the one of the greatest things I've ever done. So MTV provided money to go shoot a pilot, and uh, apparently the pilot for what turned out to be Robin Big was in such disarray, and, yeah. and you were so closely connected with it that you just really didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. How true was that? It kind of that. I. I walked into MTV with the song, people let me tell you about my best friend, right? Like where it's called Robin Big Black and it's the unlikely odd couple, it's a, a reality odd couple best friends. They were like, doesn't make sense. Doesn't even make sense. Like it's gotta have a hook, it needs a script, right? And after talking to me, they decided, we want to make Rob Dyrdek's rules to success. You're the star, you're the one, you, you're the guy, you're the business guy, you do all this stuff. I'm like, nobody even knows who I am. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so we shot the pilot, Rob Dyrdek's rules to success. And rule number one is always surround yourself with great people. They made us write an entire script. And then they were sitting in the, all the executives were sitting in the living room as we were shooting, like pump up the energy, pump up the energy. It was so bizarre. And that show sucked. But thank God, like the, the head executive at the time knew that there was something there, right? And uh, because first scene, first scene was actually a scripted scene of me and him talking in the, in the kitchen. And then he made a comment of like, he could run around the whole, a full block. And I'm like, Pfft. Like, there is no chance you could run the length of this block, right? So it's like, it, we immediately went off script and like the, the beauty of me and his chemistry immediately started flowing like right out the gate. Uh, but they, luckily that that executive knew that there was, there was potential in it and brought in a story editor. He went through all of it and was like, no, this, this is not a show about the, all of his friends and surrounding yourself with good people. It's literally a best friend comedy. Like, this is super unique. And he convinced them of that. And we, we basically stripped the pilot back to just really what Rob and Big is. And uh, it went full circle all the way back to, to the best friends buddy comedy, and, and which became the eventual pilot, which uh, got the show picked up. So uh, you're high, it, and it ends up turning into a highly successful show, Robin Big. Um, you know, you have a hit MTV show, things are going well, then three seasons in, it ends up ending really abruptly and yeah. you know, prematurely because I guess friction between you and yeah. uh, Big Black. How difficult the period was that for you? I, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a strange period, right? Because it was the struggle of like, you're also, I think both me and him, he was struggling with, I, I had been a pro skateboarder for years, so me transitioning to mainstream fame uh, was relatively smooth, right? Where for him, it was the idea that, man, he was like working security, uh, you know, two years earlier, and now he's on television, right? It was a much different dynamic, but I think we both struggled with, I didn't want to be known as like Rob from Robin Big. Like I wanted to be, you know, I was doing Street Dreams and Street League and all this business stuff. Like I wanted, I, did, I wanted to be known for that. And I think he didn't want to be known for like the sidekick, right? So that, that, that created a lot of that tension uh, between me and him and ultimately, and also, I mean, there was, wasn't there like a financial end too? Because I, I mean, while you're viewed as kind of equals on screen because yeah. you're, you know, co-stars of the show, you, I think we're making more money than him. Well, he yeah. thought that was unfair, but also yeah, really. like the we were, In viewer... that era, we paid, the, we were paid the same oh, okay. in that era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we were paid the same in that era. But like, you're also on the back end more yeah. involved in the creative process and it's ultimately yeah but he also too. didn't want to be a part of that either yeah right like it wasn't 
he didn't want to, like, he wanted to make it, he just wanted to show up and shoot, right? So it wasn't, I don't think any of that was really ultimately bothersome to him. He had started his own clothing line and making a ton of money on the side too, using that media platform the same way that I was making all these ancillary dollars, I think. I think it was, it was more the fundamental struggle of, of wanting to not be so connected to each other, right? And, and ultimately, uh, uh, you know, after we had a big blowout over, creatively over like an idea, because he knows I would write all the ideas, and then he was, I, he was going at me by saying, this idea is whack, right? So, well, because you guys had to stop shooting even at times because right. things got oh, so yeah. tense. Oh, my God, things, would get, things were so tense at, at certain times. It's funny now that I think about it, but we literally would film some of the funniest things that we have ever done and like we'll be losing it and then we'll walk away and not talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like it was super, super bizarre. How tough was that for you that, you know, here you'd worked so long to have this successful show, finally it becomes successful and then it's like kind of pulled out from under you? I, it wasn't for me because I, I, rather than sitting back and letting it go, I sold them ridiculousness, right? And they were like, do another, do your own reality show, right? So for me, it was a little bit different because it was like, we know what you're doing and we don't want to stop you. You know what I mean? Do it, like, we know you're creating this show. You're, you're writing all the ideas, like, do that for another show, right? So yeah. that's, that's, that's why it wasn't uh, quite the same. I was ready to make that transition. You, you know? were? Yeah, big time, big time. Why did you decide to create Street League Skateboarding? It, it, it's simple, you know, it's, it's, skateboarding is one of the most amazing uh, sports in the world, right? It is driven by progression, it is limitless by design, right? There is nothing else in the world like it um, that will, there's no other sport in the world that will relentlessly evolve and progress uh, because all other sports are limited by basically the function of the body and their existing rules, right? And for me, there was all these corporate media companies that had tried to basically use our sports, lump uh, action sports as a whole together and put skateboarding in that when skateboarding is its own massive industry by itself. And it was just time to uh, for skateboarding to have its own proper competitive series that uh, was ran by skateboarders. Uh, apparently all the major skateboard companies just did not think you could do it. And then your first press release that comes out, you're announcing the exclusive signings of the top 10 biggest skateboarders in the world. Explain the process that was involved with you know, actually making those deals happen. Yeah, I mean, that, that, it was easy. Right? It's like, who really lost their mind was like the ESPNs and the Mountain Dews and, and the NBCs were like, what? Right? Because it's like, how could he go and do this? Right? But the reality was is there was no loyalty from the best in the world uh, to any of those other contests. They didn't care about him. Half the guys didn't even go. So a lot of the guys that I was even signing exclusively to the league were the superstars that would never even think think about going to an X Games or a Mountain Dew contest, right? So that allowed, uh, that basically uh, authenticated what I was doing that allowed me to go and get my ESPN deal, that allowed me to, to close these big sponsorship deals to basically underwrite the company in the first year. What's been the biggest challenge so far? Man, I, I think, Every aspect about it has been an, an, an incredible challenge, but it's the, the idea of, of creating a sports entertainment property uh, that, can, that can scale and draw in a crossover audience while maintaining the authenticity uh, for your core audience, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a fine line on a lot of different aspects of, of how you do it. So it's, it's, it's that and, the reality of it is, is how I created the business model and what I thought it was the first year I did it compared to what it is today is couldn't be light years from each other. And that, that is relentless adaptation and, and, and changing the thought process and way of even understanding what it is you're doing and why over the last couple of years too. Uh, 
which has been incredibly difficult. Well, and I was speaking to your uh, street league skateboarding uh, president, Brian Atlas, and he was telling me that, that the goal is to create a global platform to engage audiences year-round through your content. And you want to create a league like you know, the UFC or the NFL or uh, Major League Baseball. I know you recently gave up some equity in the company and taking yep. on some venture capital dollars. Yep. How do you think that'll help? I, you know, I, I think what we were also lacking is that eye of like really, really high level experienced uh, business partners, right? And, and the guys at Causeway Partners, you know, they, they uh, are partners in the Boston Celtics and the San Francisco 49ers. So uh, their, their level of guidance uh, and capital to kind of help us evolve and go to the next level is something that we really needed. You know, I, I think we needed uh, to kind of uh, we're still like mom and pop shop, and it's time for us to to turn it into a a true uh, sports property. I know you're close with UFC president Dana White. What have you learned from him? Countless, nonstop, any and everything that they do. They will give me access to any. They'll show me like sponsorship and what they're getting paid. They'll talk to me about how they're doing their brands, their television deals, their how they're expanding their media and what's working and what's not working. It's like it's like the level of insight that they share with me on as I'm trying to uh, build Street League is, is unprecedented. Ten years from now, where do you want? Uh, street league skateboarding to be? I, you know, I, I think it's exactly what, what we believe it will be, right? It, it will be a, a, a global platform for skateboarding and, and with a complete ecosystem of, of brands and media and, and live events and, and little league that goes to amateur series, that goes to semi-pro, that leads to uh, street league and leads to the championship, right? Uh, uh, it will be the premier um, global skateboarding platform, period. Really a pleasure. Yeah, man. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. After the sit-down interview, Deerdeck showed me around his then fantasy factory and literally had me jumping from three stories up into a ball pit. You can check that out at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed it, again, make sure to give us a five-star review. Also, thanks to those who've submitted a rating and review. We're seeing a nice jump in podcast listeners, and it's because of you. Thanks again for listening.